All right, give yourself a grade. We have spent a great deal of time already in Deuteronomy talking about the law of God and the misapplication of the law in much of evangelical Christianity. People mistakenly cast the law of God aside, uh, knowing that it's um, important, but they still cast it aside thinking, well, we're under grace, we're new covenant believers, so it doesn't really apply to us anymore. I've used the phrase before that I heard someone say, Jesus died so we could do whatever we want, right? Now, that's not an unpopular evangelical belief, not because pastors are teaching it, but because somehow it's, it's woven its way into the understanding we have. And so this morning, as we continue through Moses' speech on the east side of the Jordan River, before they move in, we're going to be moving into the second section of his speech, or, or really, a lot of people believe, a, a second separate speech. Um, and he's giving this to the children of Israel before they cross into the land in order to help them know who they are. Right? It's kind of like a parent about to send their child off to college. They're about to go out into the wild blue yonder, and the parent wants to make sure that they've instilled in them the character and understanding of who they're going to be when they show up at their first kager, right? And so the reality is, is these guys are about to step in, and he is saying, I want you to remember who you are. And what I think that we will uh, see in the midst of this is this idea. This is the title of today's teaching. The law of God is good. The law of God is good. And that means that we still need to look to it to understand God's character, to understand his worldview of how life should be prioritized, and to remind us of our need for him to help us walk in his law, even though we are New Testament believers. Now, as a precursor to beginning the summary of the law, uh, which starts here in chapter 5 and moves on through chapter 11, The author, possibly at this point, uh, a scribal editor, finishes off the narrative section, chapters 1 through 4, of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy with an editorial comment. So let's take a look and see how this fits into what we are learning today, uh, starting there in verse 41 of chapter 4. It says, Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan, that the manslayer might flee there. Anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without being at enmity with him in the times past, he may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland for the Reubenites, or Betzer, Ramot, or Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. The first thing that we see here is that the law of God is good because it reminds us of God's mercy. We're not even into the law yet, but I find it very interesting why this section is here. If you're reading along in chapter 4, going along, and you're about to move into the law, you bump into this little speed bump in the road. And guys, a great understanding and a great tool for reading the Bible is when you hit a speed bump, stop and see what you ran over, okay? There's a reason that you felt a bump when you went over it. Most current commentators believe that this was an editorial comment added by scribes after Moses wrote the majority of Deuteronomy. It's still inspired, but it's used to kind of stitch together the narrative of chapters 1 through 4 with what we know occurred in the book of Numbers. And at this point in the story, the actual event before he was about to give his second speech was that Moses designated three cities on the east side of the Jordan that were designated as cities of refuge. Now we're going to dig into this in a ton more detail in Deuteronomy 19 when we go into it in depth. But just for a quick overview, let's look at the more detailed account. Turn with me to Numbers 35, just a little bit to the left in your Bible. Numbers 35, starting in verse 9. 
Give me an amen if you're there. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger. Okay, guys, just to check in, 2018, this is not the avengers, all right? There's no Captain America here. This is avenger. That the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them that anyone who kills any person without, any, uh, without intent may flee there. Now, as I've said before, it's been my experience that for many Christians, the view that they have of God is that the Old Testament tells them that God is waiting to pounce on them for doing something wrong. Okay? Be honest, how many of you have either heard that or have believed that yourself? That the Old Testament God is waiting to pounce and smash you with this big divine hammer when you make a mistake. But this is not the view we get here. These cities of refuge were designed and selected in a way in which there were three somewhat equidistant cities on both sides of the Jordan in which a person could find refuge if they killed someone on accident. Now, guys, this was an important deal back in the day where there were no emergency rooms. And you could die from pretty much a common cold. Death happened a lot. And so these three on the east side of the Jordan and these three on the the west side of the Jordan are very important. And remember, this is also before the days of highways and cars and roads. So it was super cool that God designated three on either side. It's very gracious of him. Now, why is this here? Well, this was a very big deal in that society because it was the job of the family to exact revenge when a death happened at the hands of someone else. This was the job of what was called the kinsman that became the avenger, the avenger of blood. You guys remember the book of Ruth? There's an example there that we're introduced to of the kinsman redeemer. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. He is the next closest male kin, and so he is to pull them up out of poverty and to give offspring. That was the job of the kinsman redeemer. But similar to redemption, it was also the job of the nearest male relative to exact revenge if a family member was slain. Okay? There's tons of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies that have this plot line. You know what I mean? Right? Again, I'm dating myself. Let's see. Somebody else give me a new, new hero. I can't say Bruce Willis. That's super old too. Uh, anyway. Well, this avenger of blood position was often misused as a way to kill someone and get away with it. Right? Oh, I know that you were nearby when my family member died. I don't like you, so let me go ahead and kill you. And I'm legal in doing it. It was used constantly as a way to get away scot-free with getting rid of people you didn't like. In other words, it needed to be litigated in a way that did not allow homicide as the appropriate response when accidental death occurred. Now look down at verse 22 there. It says, but if he pushed him suddenly, okay, the the section between where we finished and here, verses 16 through 21, talks about if you murder someone intentionally. Verse 22, though, says, but if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. 
And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge in which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. Now, as I said, we'll dig more into this later in Deuteronomy, but I think it's interesting that here in Deuteronomy 4, before we step into the law, the editorial author finds it necessary to insert this reminder about cities of refuge. Maybe he was, in a sense, trying to softball it a little bit. I know you're about to go into the law, so I want to remind you how good God is. And he does so directly preceding this introduction to the law. You see, the Bible is clear over and over, guys, that the law is not the problem. Our sinful hearts are. You ever get mad that there's a law against speeding? Why does it have to exist? Can't this be the Autobahn? I mean, I'm just in downtown Salem. I don't see what's wrong with 70 miles an hour, right? Don't say amen. My goodness. Edit that out of the teaching. No, we get mad at the law. We get mad at the police officer who pulls us over and is just doing his job to maintain order. The reality is, is it was my sinful heart to do whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. The law is what kept chaos from happening. Our sinful hearts are the problem. In fact, the Bible calls the law good. Ian read earlier from Romans 7.16, where it says this. It says, now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 9 says this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners. And guys, that's us. For the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and the list goes on and on. You can keep reading it. The law serves a purpose in that it places order into God's created realm so that creation won't run amok. And so this is why Paul can say here in 1 Timothy and in Romans, guys, the law is good. And he's saying this to New Testament believers. Often I wonder if we as Christians, we don't unknowingly communicate that the law is bad because the law says that we're sinful. In fact, the Bible speaks of what happens when, sin, when uh, lawlessness is there. That's when sin reigns. 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. I think we as Christians confuse not being under the Mosaic law with lawlessness. Well, I'm not under the Mosaic law, so there is no law. Well, that's not the reality, as we'll see today. Many Christians ask, what happens when we don't know that we have sinned, right? I run into this all the time. Uh, I ran into this when we implemented the family covenant. Uh, somebody came to me who was concerned about it, and they said, hey, this section about confessing your sin. So that means that I have to know every time I've sinned, you know, I kick the dog. I have to come talk to the pastor. I yell at my wife. I have to come talk to the pastor. Maybe I offend my wife, and I don't even know it. Uh, what do I do then? Am I stuck in my sin? And I had to help them understand that that's not how it works. We're not Catholic. It's not, you know... Uh, forgive me, Father, it's been 39 years since my last confession, right? That's not, that's not how we do it here. Uh, the Bible says to confess sin to one another, and, and often we are working together to work sin out of the midst of the congregation. You might think to yourself, well, what happens when we do something in life that's accidental, like this manslayer? 
I get that the law is good when someone does something intentional like premeditated murder, but what about when I just mess up? You ever messed up and gone, man, that was sin and I didn't mean to do it? How does the Lord handle that? Well, this is what we, where we must remember the character of our God. He is just and righteous, yes. So he cannot leave the guilty unpunished. But, dear brothers and sisters, our God is not bloodthirsty. If you look at how you view God, ask yourself, is there a place where sometimes I think God is a bit bloodthirsty? God wants my death because I have messed up so much in my life? Often I I hear that in the midst of what we as Christians say. But guys, remember the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And this is what he says in Ezekiel 18.32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. He's one that always wants to give us mercy. God does not want anyone to perish or to be punished. He's not waiting with a hammer ready to strike us down. He is holy and just, but he is not ruthless. And so when we look at Scripture, we always see a God that does not want to gloss over sin as if it never happened, but he's providing any way and every way possible for his mercy to take place, even in the Old Testament. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 4. Go a little bit more to the left, right before numbers there, to Leviticus. We're just hitting all the most interesting books today, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Leviticus chapter 4. You're going to ask me if we're going to go to Lamentations next, aren't you? Chapter 4, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally, and notice your footnote there, it says, by mistake, in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Look over at verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally or makes a mistake, it'll say in your your footnote, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. Guys, this by mistake, this unintentionally, it means by mistake in the Hebrew, The Hebrew reads, makes an error. When we make a mistake in life and we are unaware, God gave Israel and he gives us the ability to seek atonement. It's funny, when my kids make mistakes, we try to differentiate for them the huge difference between rebellion and mistakes. And the blessing we pray over them on a regular basis in the evenings, we say, when you make a mistake, it's okay. Just turn to Jesus and follow his ways. You see, mistakes are different than blatant rebellion. And we as parents have to realize that. And I think if we do, we can project that onto God as well, that rebellion is different than mistakes. As New Covenant believers, we rely upon the atoning work of Christ as that sacrificial offering for unintentional sin. Jesus Christ died as the sin offering in your place and mine so we don't go through life mindlessly, not caring about whether we sin or not, Rather, we can know that if we repent when sin is brought up, whether it's by internal or external conviction, 
then for those unintentional sins we commit, we can know that Jesus' blood cleanses us from unrighteousness. Guys, this is even the case within personal relationships. The law of God is good because it tells us how to deal with unintentional sin in relationships. Raise your hand if you've ever made a faux pas in a relationship where someone was mad at you and you didn't know until far later. Guys, I can't even tell you the number of times where someone comes up to me angry after a Sunday service and they're angry about the sermon, but I can tell that it's something else. And so I'll ask, is there there's something else going on underneath this? Guys, it's been dozens and dozens and dozens of times over the last seven years. And what they'll say is, well, yeah, you know, that email you sent me two years ago, I really didn't like your response. Great, you could have come and told me. I didn't even know I did that. We all make these mistakes in relationships. But God is so gracious because of his law. When he commands us to do something, he creates an environment in which those things can come out and be dealt with. Think about Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Notice that the onus isn't on the person who sinned. Because guys, we're all very blockheaded humans. And so we need the person who feels sinned against to come and talk to us. Even in this, God's grace and his law is good. Why isn't it when you sin, go and talk to the person you sinned against? Well, because when we've committed sin against a brother or sister, we may not know it. So God's mercy, in God's mercy, he gives us this command to bring conviction so that we can repent. Likewise, these cities of refuge are a blessing in that when a person unintentionally harmed someone else or killed them, there was a way to live within that society that called for vengeance and yet acted in mercy. I love what James says in James 2.13, the second part of the verse. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The Greek word means that mercy has more power than judgment. God's mercy is stronger than his judgment. And we must be a people that show this side of God to our loved ones, to the people in this church, and to all of us, uh, all of those in the community around us. We need to show that God is gracious and always wanting to show mercy. Now, maybe I'm taking this a bit too far, but I think the insertion of this text before the summary of the law speaks perfectly to us. It's as if God desires for us to know, dear children, know that this law I'm about to cover is holy and good and true, but also know that it is for the purpose of shalom, for peace, for wholeness. And when you make a mistake, brothers and sisters of Mission Fellowship, it's okay. Just turn back to Jesus Turn back to the God that loves you and desires to show you mercy. As with the manslayer that went to the city of refuge, yes, there were consequences for your action. The manslayer had to stay in a whole new city for most of his life. But the mercy of God allowed him to keep his life. Likewise, sin in this life has consequences. But your God desires to show you mercy. He desires to get you through it. And he proved that in his son Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Church, never forget that. Always turn back to him. Know that he is a merciful God and that his law is good because it reminds us of God's mercy. Well, let's go back to Deuteronomy in chapter 4 there. And we're going to keep reading. Here the scribes are going to give us another editorial comment and then we're going to step in and I'm going to read through the whole of the chapter 
And we're going to cover the law of God both this week and next. So let's jump right in. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. In verse 44. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land in the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon. Together with all the Erevah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Erevah, under the slopes of Pisgah. So he adds an editorial comment just to reset our minds to what we're about to read. Chapter 5, verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Notice both the learning and the doing. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. He's basically saying, guys, don't think this was just for them. This is also for us today. And I would say the same thing to you and I here in 2018. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. If you're concerned as to why I'm switching out Lord and Yahweh, you can go back and listen to last week's teaching about the name of God. Verse 16, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words Yahweh spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? 
for this great fire will consume us. Notice their fear, a little bit probably over the top. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. Now the question is, is where do they get that? For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard the words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and go to keep all my commandments. Uh, and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess." What we see here is a review of the Ten Commandments that were originally given in Exodus 20. And this morning, I want to give you some summarizing ideas, and then we'll dig into the details a bit more next week. There are two more main summary statements in addition to what I already said about the law being good. And the next one, after reminding us of God's mercy, is this. You can write this down. That the law is good because it helps us prioritize life correctly. The law is good because it helps us prioritize life correctly. Church, notice the order of these commandments. Let's summarize them somewhat quickly. The first through the third commandments, one, two, and three, all have to do with God, his character, his identity, his image, and a correct display of who he is. Three commandments on that topic. Do you think that's important? Do you think it's important that we get who our God is correct? I think it is. Commandment four has to do with the Sabbath, which in our society we think is about the weekend and rest. It's amazing how many people, when I hear them talk about the Sabbath, they think it's God's command to vacation. But that's not at all what it's for, as we will see next week. What it has more to do with is huge social implications on the care that masters had over their bondservants and how society functioned. The fourth command is a social justice commandment. It was made so that men wouldn't be overworked and overburdened, but that they would be cared for by a caring God. It's a law about society and about how we care for others. Commandment five has to do with family. Mothers and fathers walking as followers of Yahweh, citizens of heaven, instructing their children in all that has to be wor- that is to be wor- uh, uh, all that it is to be a worshiper of Yahweh. Now, guys, this is not a law that you can take out of context, as I've said before, and just say my children need to do what I say. Your children, in their obedience to God, should disobey you if you are not teaching them the commands of Christ. That's why Christ said it's better for children to separate from their parents and follow me than it is to follow parents who are not following me. But we love this one in the United States. Honor your father and mother. Well, what if they're morons and they're not following Jesus? Well, you should still honor them, then follow them because that's what's right to do. No, it's not. It's not at all. 
and we'll get into that next week. And yes, I did just call parents morons because I can be one of them. (laughs) What we'll see as we go through in chapter 6 in the Great Shema is that it has attached to it the responsibility of parents to teach their children well. And children are taught to respect their parents not because they say so, but because it's necessary for the child to listen and retain what is taught about Yahweh. Well, commandment 6 has to do with life in general and how important it is. And it carries with it, as we'll see next week, an implication of respecting the image of God found in another human being. So it has to do with life. Commandment 7 has to do with proper sexual boundaries. And those proper sexual boundaries are to support the family structure which supports the societal structure which supports the people of God. It all builds on itself. And these, this idea of sex in the appropriate order points people to an image of the intimate covenant relationship God has with his people. Commandment 8 is about respecting the property of other people. This is property that is owned and used. We shouldn't take it. When it's been given by God, we should respect that it's been given by God. Number 9 has to do with one's character and maintaining that image and reputation. Notice that it doesn't say, thou shalt not lie. Now, we'll get into this again more next week, but lying and giving false witness are very different things. False witness has to do with killing someone's character and their reputation within their family and their community. And then commandment 10 is about stuff. Stuff and relationships, but mostly about coveting in our society. It talks about not coveting another's wife or their house or their servant, but it has to do really with coveting stuff. It's basically saying don't be greedy and discontent to the place where you want what everyone else has. Now, so in summary, if you look at this, the order of priorities according to God are this. The highest is God, three times, then society or others, family and discipleship, life, sex, property, reputation, stuff. You guys all got that? You following me? Two people? You all following me? Okay. Do you ever notice that this is the human disposition to take what God says is true and then flip it on its head? If you were to order these laws according to 2018 standards, it would probably be as follows. Stuff. I want whatever I don't have. Vacation, lifestyle, toys, that PS4, man or 5, or 25, whatever it's up to now. I don't even know. Gizmos, more and more and more and more. I need more stuff, right? That's what Christmas is all about, isn't it? The perfect picture of our society is that we came up with a way to follow up the one national day in which we give thanks with another national holiday that people practice probably far more that's about beating someone else up so they get the better new half-price TV at the Black Friday sale. That's our society. And now we've figured out a way where we don't actually need to have it after Thanksgiving. We can have it start before and we're really just all eating our turkey ready to go get more stuff. This is the United States in 2018. But then after the stuff that we want, I would say the next highest law for us in 2018 is our reputation. But we would use the phrase our social media presence. We want everyone to not only think rightly of us, we want them to think beyond what is truthful to think of us as better than we actually are. We take pictures in unhappy marriages of happy couples in the selfie. 
We take our food and we manipulate it just so, so it can be the perfect Instagram photo. Our reputations are huge to us. You see where I'm going with all of this? Our prioritization in America is in direct opposition to God's prioritization. And it isn't just America. We are just on the bleeding edge. The rest of the world wants so badly to follow in our gluttonous footsteps. Brothers and sisters, I want you to ponder something with me this week. What will it take for us to get our priorities in line with God? I would suggest to you that learning and obeying God's commands is the solution. Unfortunately, many of us in this room have a pretty long way to go to accomplish that, don't we? Myself included. It was interesting to me that if you look at Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, all of his quotes that he uses to respond to Satan's temptation to flip God's word on its head, he uses from the section of Deuteronomy that is the summary of the law. You guys remember the story? Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, and Satan came to him to tempt him to forsake the Father and disobey. And first thing, you remember what he tempted him with? What was it that he tempted him with first? The stone to bread, hunger, stuff, right? Base desires. In Matthew 4 4, Jesus responds to that temptation and says from Deuteronomy 8 3, He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, next, Satan tempts Jesus with safety and protection. Is that a big one in our society? Safety and protection, right? That's what we pray for most of the time. When somebody gets sick, what do we pray for? Protection. When we have a job interview, what do we pray for? Protection. When we're going on a trip, what do you pray for? Traveling mercies, which I still can't find anywhere in scripture. I don't know where we made that up. But we pray for protection and safety, right? He plays on the potential for human fear and anxiety, Satan does, and says, hey, Jesus, cast yourself down from the temple and test if God is good and will save you. And what does does Jesus do? In Matthew 4, 7, he responds with Deuteronomy 6, 16. It says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And lastly, Satan tempts Jesus to worship and lift himself up by taking over the kingdoms of the world. So whoever it was that said kingdoms, you were right, okay? This is one of the ways he tempted him. And Jesus responds in Matthew 4.10 with Deuteronomy 6.13 and says this, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Notice where he gets his ammunition, guys. Chapter 6 and chapter 8. All within chapters 5 through 11, the summary of God's law. Jesus understood the Father's supremacy and priority, and he used this section of Scripture, the summary of the law, to orient himself so that his mind would be in accordance with the Father's. Church, perhaps this week would be a good week to simply memorize this section of Scripture, chapter 5. Maybe not the full chapter, but the commandments of God. Perhaps that simple act of obedience would give the Holy Spirit more ammunition internally, to change our worldview to match the Lord's. Go back and think about the grade you gave yourself at the beginning. If it wasn't an A+, we should probably do some work. Now, the law of God is good because it not only reminds us of God's mercy, but it also helps us to prioritize our lives correctly. Well, third and lastly, the law of God is good because it helps us realize our need for Christ. If you were looking at that list of prioritization and thinking to yourself, yep, I've pretty much flipped that on its head. 
I'm sure you're in pretty good company, or should I say sinful company, in the midst of this church. Many of us have. We've all flipped it on its head. And part of the reason we do that is because we're sinful. We're broken and black-hearted. And so the law of God is good because it helps us realize our need for Christ. If you're still in Deuteronomy, you can look at verses 28 and 29 there with me again. After it says, The Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. He says this, God says this, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. As we saw last week, we are an idolatrous people. And it's so interesting to me when I think of the Ten Commandments, my default, I don't know about you guys, but it's only to think of the last five. You ever do that? Uh, Somebody says Ten Commandments, I immediately go, oh, yeah, cool, man, I'm good. No murder, no stealing, I'm good, man. You know, those five, those are easy, right? Supposedly. Somehow I always forget number ten, the coveting one. Maybe you're like that, maybe you're not, maybe I'm the only sinner in the place, but There was someone else who thought this way. Turn with me to Luke 18 in your Bibles. Luke 18. Let's read through verse... 30s. Jesus is coming across a young man who is extremely rich and has high authority, and he wants to talk to him for a second. And so a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is eighteen nineteen. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Notice how he's trying to get his eyes up to the Lord. Okay. And then he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Notice that he is missing a few there. And the man said, all these I have kept from my youth. See, he does the same thing I do. I'm good. Last five, man. Awesome. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? You see, if you you can't get there with money, then, then what on earth could you get there with, people are thinking. But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, We have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Notice with me that Jesus did not quote the 10th commandment, the one on coveting, or any to do with the rich young ruler's relationship with God. I think personally that he was trying to direct him to God, but the man was blind to his own idolatry. He idolized wealth and stuff. Coveting was his life. Often I think I or we can be like this man. We think, don't murder, don't steal. I got that, no problem. I'm keeping the commandments, but here is the problem. We will discuss next week how in his interpretation of the Ten Commandments, Jesus will set us straight. 
we don't even truly keep all those of the five because we can't fully seem to stay on track with the first three regarding our relationship with God. And if you've broken one, you've broken all of them because they all point to the Lord. Now, why was it in Deuteronomy 5.29 that God wished for them to always fear and, and fear him and keep all his commandments? Why did he wish for this? Well, they were supposed to fear him and he wished for this because it would go well with them, that they would be in line with the Lord, that they would fear him and that they would keep his commands. Now, this word fear is so uncomfortable in our language and culture. To fear God does mean that we should be afraid that he could destroy us. I run into this all the time when I'm talking with parents. Guys, there is a measure of fear that should be in your parenting. Not authoritarian where your child thinks you're going to beat them at the drop of a hat in chaotic fashion. But guys, I want my children to all know that if they mess with their mother, they will have the wrath of father come down upon them. It sets for a very orderly home. I watch a lot of parents who are just chaotically letting their children run the house and they're not teaching the fear of the Lord in the appropriate way. I watch abusive parents who are beating on their kids all the time and, and being chaotic in when they bring discipline and that is just as incorrect. But the reason that we're to fear the Lord is because it's important for us to understand that he has power. But in the midst of that power is the greater thing of mercy and love. That the creator is merciful. So what it means is that we have great reverence and respect for him. That we know it is wisdom to think through his view and priority. That it is wisdom to set our lives in his value system. And that it is wisdom to give up anything and everything that keeps us from that. And at the end of the day, you and I must realize and admit that our hearts are far from reverencing and lifting up God the way we should. We should desire it and ask for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives more and more to fear the Lord and to keep his commandments. But our hearts are dark and idolatrous. The solution that the Bible gives us, the divine answer, is that God, who is rich in mercy and love towards those of us that are his, he knew that he had to give us a way to grant us mercy, to redeem us from ourselves and the sin which dwells inside of us. And he needed to be able to regenerate those darkened hearts so that we would slowly but surely grow to reflect God's own heart. Look at what Jesus promised in John 7 before his death and resurrection. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the Spirit has, had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, those that believe in Jesus and have allegiance to him will be given the Holy Spirit so that our hearts, those of us that believe, a short way of, shorthand way of saying our minds and our emotions, will be given over to following Jesus and reverencing the Father. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, this promise came to pass. Peter even testified to its occurrence before the Jerusalem council, saying this of the Gentile believers. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Brothers and sisters, do you have the Holy Spirit in your life? 
If you've professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you do. The question is, are you giving the Holy Spirit room to move? Are you giving the Holy Spirit the ammunition of the Word of God to convict you and draw you more into the image of God? Are you spending time in the quiet and solitude of your life with the Holy Spirit, asking Him to change you and build you up into Christ? When Jesus died on the cross for you and me, He took our place and paid the penalty for our sin. When He rose again, He proved that sin and death has no power over us. Sin has no power over us. And he ascended into heaven and poured out his spirit into the hearts of the church. And we now have the capability to break apart from our sinfulness and serve the living God in growing fashion. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that you can grow more and more into the image of Jesus, not becoming perfect until the resurrection, but growing into the image of Jesus? The more we give our lives over to the movement of the Spirit and the conviction of His Word, the law of God will not be some external force weighing us down or we're waiting for it to beat us, but it will be something that wells up inside of us and pours out to the world to draw them to the source of life. This is why Paul could say to the church in Corinth this in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 through 3, he says, you yourselves, he's speaking to the brothers and sisters in the Corinthian church, and guys, how righteous was the Corinthian church? Remind me? On a scale of 1 to 10, how well were they doing? 10 being like Jesus, 1 being like me. Like a negative 5, right? Okay. 2, they're better than me? Oh, come on, man. All right. But he says this to them. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You see, when the word of God, when the command of God and the law of God that was written on those stone tablets becomes part of who we are in our mind and emotions, the Spirit uses them and he changes us to be more and more like God. Dear brothers and sisters, the law shows us our need for salvation through Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ in here or you've been holding him at a distance or doing the tiptoe between the world and Jesus, it is time to commit your life to Christ. It is time to give your allegiance to him and say, you are my Lord and I follow your commands in the priority you have given them. If that's you here today, it's as simple as falling on your knees or staying seated even, if you've got bad knees, and saying, Lord, I want you to be my Lord. During our time of worship, you can do that by yourself or you can come back and talk with me in the back and I'd love to pray with you about what it is to follow Christ. For those of us that are already believers, already know that we have the Spirit working in our life, we are people that should be drawn to the law of God. Not so that we can religiously control God or know for sure that our salvation is assured because we're trying to keep all the law. That will actually show us that we're bigger sinners than we think. But because this law of God, the basis, the law of God that is love, as we sang earlier, the gospel of peace, it will dwell inside of us and well up to pour out to people around us so that a lost and dying world can know the love and mercy of God. Church, the law is good because it reminds us of God's mercy. It's good because it helps us prioritize our lives correctly. And it's good because it helps us realize our need for Christ. These all should be reasons why we pour back into the law time and time again. Not dismiss it in our Bible reading plan because, well, it's the law. And so this week, I have two simple exhortations for you. Two simple requests. 
First, memorize the Ten Commandments. Memorize the Ten Commandments. As we enter a time of worship, we will begin with speaking out the Ten Commandments as it is written in the New City Catechism. There's copies on the back there you can grab. You can also put an app on your phone. The New City Catechism from uh, Redeemer Church in New York that Tim Keller used to pastor. We will read from that catechism the Ten Commandments. And secondly, I want to exhort you to set your hearts this week to keep God as the highest priority in your life. I get asked often, Hans, how do I do that? I feel like, you know, man, I start out Sunday evening, it's like, man, this week is going to be for Jesus, right? All right? How many of you feel that way, right? You have church, you feel great, you're so excited, and then Monday comes, right? And it's like, man, what happened to my zeal for Jesus? You know, it's about 1130 and you're like, is the week over yet? Oh, I haven't even thought about Jesus yet. Well, guys, I want to give you one simple thing that you can do to set your heart and mind with the Lord as highest priority. In my first year of seminary, I took this class that was an amazing class. And one of the things that actually stuck with me the most was how simple and profound the Lord's Prayer is. And so I started doing this thing where every morning before my feet hit the floor, I'd open my eyes and I would say out loud the Lord's Prayer. Very simply, very quietly. I wouldn't say it loud enough to wake up Kelly or anything like that. I would just say it. And I did it for a couple of weeks. And guys, doing that simple act of obedience, praying out, because guess what? I don't have words in my brain in the morning to come up with to pray to God. So I pray the way he told me. And doing that allowed me to set my mind and heart towards Christ. And so not only are we going to read from the catechism as we enter worship, but then we're also going to say the Lord's Prayer together. We're going to grab hands and uh, say the Lord's Prayer. And I want to encourage you to do these two things this week, to memorize the Ten Commandments and to say the Lord's Prayer simply as not religious rituals, but as ways to focus on who the Lord is this week. Because I know you're busy. I know you're stressed. I know Christmas is a coming and you got a lot to do. But what the law does is it points our hearts to the Lord and that's a good thing. So this week, let's purpose to take our upside down priorities And turn them right side up with Jesus high and lifted up, remembering that God is merciful, that he's given us a way to be redeemed, and that we can look to him as our salvation, as our refuge.